Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You ever stop to wonder why Jesus answers so many questions about prayer, about heaven, about how we should live with stories? Now here we are in Luke chapter 12. Jesus is kind of traveling through Samaria here. And in these previous chapters, Jesus has given a couple of stories already. He's given one story about a man who was beat to death and a stranger who had compassion in response to who is my neighbor, that question. He didn't give a definition of who a neighbor was. He just gave a story. Next, we got a question about prayer, again followed with a story about a very hungry, unexpected visitor who comes in the middle of the night asking for bread, and later that story will continue with a persistent widow and a judge. There's a question posed, there's a story given. And in our gospel text today, we have another example of someone asking a question and Jesus answering with a story. Now, the first two, if you look at those, you go back through uh, Luke, and I don't really have any hesitations with why he tells the stories. But this one, this one always makes me do like a double take on how Jesus responds. There's a man who appears to be cheated out of uh, some of his inheritance, and he's asked Jesus to please help right the wrong. And Jesus just refuses, right? He responds with a question of his own saying, man, who appointed me judge or arbitrator between you? Now, obviously, no one has here. Of course, my mind goes to the second article that we're going to confess in just a little bit and sing as Jesus who comes to judge between living and the dead. And also, if you remember in the context of the time, it was the rabbi or the teachers who were the judges between people in the Jewish community. So I look at this and it kind of makes me say, really, Jesus, really, you're not going to step in here? I mean, it doesn't seem like a bad request. And again, not just two chapters earlier, he said, ask, seek, knock, and you will find, receive, and the door will be open to you. And now here's this guy who is asking, and Jesus gives him a firm no. Maybe that means so much for prayer as a procedure or a formula, right? The guy sought Jesus, he asked Jesus, and he was ready for that door to be open. And Jesus said no. I wonder what the disciples were thinking in that moment. Wait, he asked, he sought, he didn't get the door open. Maybe prayer here is supposed to be something that is more than just words that we say. Now, before you think I'm trying to turn you against Jesus, let's be real. Jesus has exercised some spiritual discernment here, has he not? He sees the heart of this man. He knows that this is not just a call for justice. This is a call about wanting more. The man is coveting. Now, there is nothing here in the text to make us think that he wasn't being defrauded or his rights weren't being violated. And we know that God is for justice. We see that through the prophets. We threw that through John the baptizer. We even see that in Jesus himself calling for justice, talking about how that is part of the kingdom of God. But this is not about justice. This, friends, is about greed. And Jesus warns us today that life is more than just what you have. Perhaps this will be our first lesson for today. See, when a story is told, we can do a few things. We can enjoy the story. We can ignore the story. We can think that the story was kind of cute and we liked it. We could retell the story. 
But to comprehend the story, to experience the story, we have to enter into it. See, I think Jesus tells stories so that we can, no matter the day or age, participate in them. Put ourselves into this story. So I will start by being the man. Not in words, but trying to be the man in his heart. See, I too also know how to pray. I know how to ask. I know who to ask. I know the right way to say things, to cross my T's and to dot my I's, all to get what I want. And what's better is that I know how to do it in a way that makes me seem very favorable, very pure. And maybe you can do that too. Make something look very good and very right. Maybe even quote a verse or two to help support you. But in reality, hiding the sin behind what you truly are desiring. It is interesting how often I cover up my sin in the wrapping paper of virtue. I'm reminded that the devil does not waste time trying to get us to do blatantly evil things, but rather he hides the evil in good things and then tries to convince us that the good outweighs the bad. When I enter into this story, I recognize myself in the man because I too have tried to mask what I want the wrong that I want in a very seemingly good way. Perhaps the takeaway before this parable even begins is that it's time to check our hearts. Check what we are choosing right now to define our lives by. By our things, by our accomplishments, by the situation that we are in, by our current status, maybe even our failures. It is time to check and examine our hearts and whether or not we have been coming to God as our authentic self or as the one we think he wants to see. St. Benedict reminds us, let us be holy, not seek to be thought of as holy. Before the parable even begins, we are called to check our heart. You enter the story again and we're told the parable, right? The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I got no place to store my crops. He said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. And there I'm going to put all my extra grain. And I'll say to myself, you got plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself. The story ignores the man's rights and simply impales his greed. But the story has done so in a way that it is very indirect. See, it's just a story. Maybe the man doesn't even recognize himself and it. Maybe we don't, right? Maybe he doesn't own a barn. I know I don't own a barn. I'm not planning on tearing down any barns or building any new ones. Jesus isn't pulling a Nathan here and saying, you're the man in this story. The story allows the man to kind of leave with a little bit of dignity and then he can choose to enter it in his own volition. Or he can simply ignore it and say, you know what? I don't know what this guy's talking about. He's talking about Barnes. I was talking about my rights. I'll find someone else, I guess, to listen to me. Parables don't always make something easier. Sometimes they make them harder. 
They have a way of not necessarily condemning us or condescendingly explaining things to us. They just kind of sit there. This pebble sits like a little pebble in my this parable sits like a little pebble in my shoe. Bothersome, requiring attention, requiring participation. If Jesus wanted to talk about greed, why didn't he just say this? Why didn't he just give us a formula here? Why didn't he just say, okay, you don't want to have greed, so make sure that you give 10% of everything that you have. Or you don't want to start coveting what isn't yours, so do this, say that, and then you will be good. Part of me wants that. I want him just to tell me exactly what to do. The other part says, please. You know how many times I get told exactly what to do and just ignore it? I can't even do the most basic of things from the true professionals in my life who are doctors and say, eat well, exercise daily. And I go like, what is that, like McDonald's twice a week, three times? What are you saying there? I don't understand. Jesus is after something different than just some list of to-dos for us. Jesus is after our heart. See, we get this parable and each one of us feels it differently. Because the reality is we are all wealthy. And I'm not talking about things that we have heard before on commercials and things that we know, right? That if you have money in your pocket and spare change in a dish at your home, then you're at the top 8% of the most wealthy in the world. If you've got a roof over your head, clothes to wear, transportation to get around in, and food in the fridge, then you are good. It's very difficult to look in the mirror and not say, I'm not wealthy, I'm poor. Then step outside, it gets even more difficult to not say, God has not been very generous to me. Friends, he didn't make one tree, there's billions. He didn't make one flower or one type of animal or one national park. There's not just one house, you could have up to four. God has given us so much in this world. What does it say in Luke 6? It's given good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and spilled over in our lap. The abundance of God's wealth that he has given us is everywhere. And if nature isn't enough for you to be convinced that we are wealthy, what about the grace that we have been given? God doesn't just barely save us and say, I'm going to do this much, and then you've got to carry the rest of the way. His mercies are new every morning. Promises to give us his very own spirit, each one of us given unique spiritual gifts and each one of us a very uniqueness of our own. Because we are rich, because we have more than we need. And the moment we are wealthy, whether that's in God or in goods, we are liable to greed. Wealthy in God means that we take his grace for granted. Wealthy in materials means we're not just content with this, we need a little bit more. And Because where we are, there is no avoiding the condition of wealth, whether that's spiritual blessings or material. Because of greed and because of pride, it's not very long before all of us start thinking about building bigger barns. I can keep doing that sin. It's not hurting anyone, and I got barns and barns of grace. I can keep wasting my things. I can keep, there's plenty of trees. Someone will plant them. Someone is going to invent a way to cure this plastic and stuff. That's not my problem. 
And the little change that I'm going to make, that's not going to do any difference. And this is my money, my things, which means I can choose to do with them as I please. That's greed, that's pride infecting us, getting into our bloodstream, taking over and messing with our hearts. As soon as we keep, quit thinking of wealth as love to be shared and instead of it as power to be used. Wealth has a way of turning itself into power that can be used to control people, to manipulate people, and to abuse people. And there are many, many who have been the victims of those who are wealthy and powerful, who have been abused emotionally, physically, and sexually. And I know it may not seem like much right now, but it is time that this church bows its head in silent prayer, calling for our Lord to heal those who have been victims and ask our Father to give us the courage to stand with them and listen and support. And if you're in our pews or you're at home watching whatever the time or day, I'd ask that you do that with me now, a silent prayer for God to end the abuse Our Lord calls us to pray for those who are hurting. And our Lord calls us to love those who are hurting. And if you need help and you need support, your church is here for you. There's not a lot we can do if we don't know. But when we know, we can help. You are loved and you are not alone. See, when you enter into this story, you spend some time in it, you move past that gut reaction that says, am I not supposed to have a savings account? What do you mean God's going to demand someone's life? I thought he was a nice guy. And you get to the heart, you find the truth of this parable is that each one of us is wealthy in some way. But the question being asked is, what are we going to do with our wealth? Our wealth was not meant for our own power, but to support others in love. Friends, we worship here today because people mortgage their homes for a place to gather, a place to worship. We watch online because people chose to donate instead of to store. We create prayer and care communities, not so that we can boast that we're helping people, but so that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus, of those who don't know him. Provide care and prayer and support to those who are alone and suffering. The truth is God has given us so much wealth so that we can love so much. And thanks be to God that he did not use his own power, his own wealth for his own gain, but instead washed feet. Didn't store up his gifts for himself, but freely gave them to better the community through each one of us, regardless of how worthy we are or where our status is. Each one of us is called to share the wealth that we have been given. We have never been a congregation of barn builders. And no pandemic will ever change that. Wealth wasn't meant so that we would never have to work again, but so that we could use our wealth to work for an even greater good that we didn't know was possible. 
See, it's not that God doesn't want us to be wealthy and he wants us all to be poor and suffering. It's about our heart. Wealth isn't supposed to turn us inward, but it's supposed to push us outward like he did. Friends, this is your church, your church. You belong to it. You get to join in the work that your church is doing. People come to a collective church to do more good together than they could ever do on their own. Kelly talked about a hundred kids that we wanted to give birthday presents to or Christmas presents to. As of 6.45 this morning, 90 of them have them. We got 10 left. And there's more kids that we could do. We started with zero care communities and 130 kinship families who are on the brink of having to give up their children to foster care. By the end of December, we're going to have seven. That means there's only 123 more families we got to serve and find a way to support. And there is a way for each of us to get involved in everything. My friend came over and redid my lawn because he said, all you got is dirt. Now I walk in and I got something amazing to look at because he used his gifts. He used his unique gifts to love and to support. Each of us can do that. Wealth wasn't meant so that we could store it up for ourselves. It's meant to be shared. It's not just money and resources that we give. We're supposed to give of ourselves. Leading and participating in Bible study, that makes a huge difference. You think it doesn't? Friends, you get so much more out of a Bible study when the people around you participate. I don't feel alone when I hear that other people are suffering. I don't feel like I've got it or I have to have it all together because I know that this person doesn't and here's where they turn to God and now I can too. We share our lives together. We don't store up barns, store up our goods and ourselves and hide them away in the barns. And I get it. I'm not trying to be a radical and saying don't hide in your homes and don't stay there. I'm saying, do not let this pandemic stop us from loving one another and sharing with what we have. You do not have to go outside to love. Phone calls, letters, support, change lives. And through it all, man, I don't want you to be content. I want you to be more. I want you to be so much more than you even thought possible because of the work of the Spirit of Jesus Christ inside of you. That is what we are called to. To recreate, to resurrect that which was lost because of sin and broken because of where we are at as a society and in this world. And thanks be to God that He didn't die on a cross just for Himself but so that his mercy and forgiveness could be shared. I say we pick up and finish the parable, adding a little sequel here to it. It's kind of silly, but it'll all start us. You finish it. Ready? The man responded, 
to what God had said and shouted, Lord, have mercy on me. Show me how not to store up my grain in barns, but instead to share it. And so the man went and, you tell me. You tell me. 